Welcome to today's podcast, The Current State of SCPA Enforcement Efforts. When the U.S. passed the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in 1977, it was a world leader in setting up mechanisms to battle bribery and corruption. The FCPA made it illegal for U.S. companies and their officers to influence foreign officials with anything of value. Now questions are being raised about our interest in enforcing the law. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said his department is committed to enforcing the FCPA, but echoed the objections of President Trump and other critics who say companies can't compete when barred from paying bribes in locales where it is routine to do so. Since Trump took office, there has been a dramatic drop-off in FCPA enforcement proceedings. Those numbers may be an administrative anomaly, but bear watching because a continued decline in enforcement numbers may undermine U.S. credibility in combating international corruption. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence sits down with Joel Cohen, co-chair of Gibson Dunn's White Collar Defense and Investigations Group and a member of its securities litigation, class actions, and antitrust practice groups. A trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor, his experience includes all aspects of SCPA and anti-corruption issues, insider trading, securities and financial institution litigation, class actions, sanctions, money laundering, and asset recovery, with a particular focus on international disputes and discovery. Notably, Mr. Cohn was the prosecutor of Jordan Belfort and Stratton Oatmont, the focus of the film The Wolf of Wall Street. With that, I'll turn it over to David Lawrence, Brain Founder. David? Joel, it's a great honor. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank let me start with a uh, well. Let me start with a simple question, since we've known each other for many years. And one point of connectivity is uh, uh, when I was at uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, Jordan Belfort was trying to do some business with Goldman, and prior to the, your prosecution, uh, we were able to uh, navigate him away. So uh, it's great to speak with you again. Uh, you counsel many. Um, companies in many different industries, um, doing business in many different parts of the world. And you've been among the most thoughtful uh, individuals in not only counseling companies away from risk, but obviously responding to particular issues that flare up. I think it would be great if you could generally give an overview of where we are today uh, in terms of um, the risk, uh, the enforcement activity, and the advice that you're giving companies, particularly in an increasingly competitive and um, interconnected world. Well, it, that's a big question, but um, but it's the kind of question that um, that one often faces when uh, talking with David Lawrence. Because David, you've been in the forefront of uh, a phrase that I, I think you embody the phrase thought leadership, um, and um, and have been doing so before that became a common phrase in in. Uh, in the intelligence of legal um, communities. So that's a big question. I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, the long-term trend continues to be towards more enforcement and more interconnectivity between uh, regulators. Um, and short-term shifts, which we'll probably discuss in this uh, as we go further, um, uh, for instance, in the United States, where there might reasonably be a perception of a slight sort of you know, ratcheting back of enforcement in the anti-corruption world with the advent of the new, of the now not so new Trump administration, that doesn't really change the trend. The trend is still towards interconnectivity. Um, we see it um, in many different metrics. Um, you don't necessarily see it in the number of cases that are being brought year by year. You know, it's, it's like trying to uh, use a baseball analogy. If you're trying to pick the best next setter fielder for your team, you don't want to just look at the batting average of a player over a two-week period, but you want to look over a longer time frame. And so a lot of times the statistics don't really tell the story. But 
tangibly, um, you know, uh, at Gibson Dunn, we, we are fortunate to, to be involved in lots of um, investigative matters and ones where we advise clients to avoid them for counseling. And, uh, and I'd say that we're seeing um, a connectivity, um, not so much between the Department of Justice and the SEC increase. That's already there. But we're seeing a connectivity uh, involving um, other forces in the U.S. Department of Justice in the money laundering world. We're seeing connectivity with foreign regulators that five years ago weren't even on the radar of, uh, of companies and clients worried about, about corruption. Most prominently, and we can talk about it as Brazil, for instance, but also France, for instance, which is uh, you know, notoriously known to do a, not, not the most robust job against corruption. That's changing. We're seeing a lot of change in the United Kingdom. Um, we just added at Gibson, um, we're very thrilled to have a, a Sasha Harper Kelly who joined us from the Serious Fraud Office. Um, he's a fabulous lawyer and, a, and one of the fabulous alum of, of the SFO to come in private practice. But what's interesting is that, you know, he can talk about um, the Rolls-Royce case and several other major settlements that the SFO has, has overseen in the last year. Three years ago, th those didn't exist. I mean, nobody at the SFO could talk about such resolutions because they were still ramping up their system. So it's, it's, coming, it's coming to fruition um, in a way that many had predicted, and we're beginning to see that in terms of the breadth of, of, of connectivity of cases. Joel, that's a, a great overview. And I know one of the points that I've heard you make repeatedly to clients, uh, and this goes to the point about, you know, not to sort of gauge the enforcement environment by a snapshot, is very often these cases take a long time to develop. Very often there are enforcement activities that are below the surface that people won't see. And that very often, certainly um, in the investigation disclosure modes, um, there is a, I'll call it a long period of gestation between a public pronouncement about it and the actual involvement of the case. And maybe you can chat just a little bit um, about the life cycle of these cases. And also, I know you've been acutely aware of how these cases can arise, everything from obviously a self-generated investigation or enforcement authorities seeing a problem at one company and, and just, you know, thinking about the contagion factor and what other companies might be uh, doing uh, to whistleblowers, to WikiLeaks, et cetera. But, you know, there is now a, a much broader cross-section of, I'll call it, um, contagions that can begin these investigations, and obviously it can often take a long time before they uh, become public. Um, the, this, some really good questions in there. In terms of the life cycle, I think it still, in general, remains um, in, the, in the years rather than months. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, we... we we uh, frequently will uh, learn of concerns about corruption somewhere in the world on behalf of a client. Um, often we're brought in to do an internal um, review, a risk review. We'll come in alongside uh, or bring in alongside or come in alongside um, non-legal experts that can assist with that as well. Um, and uh, that can take you know, months. Um, and then there's a decision whether to disclose um, more frequently than in the past. Um, in, the, in the midst of the review, you get a call from a regulator that discovers uh, the problem through a whistleblower source or some other source. And they're, so they're, they're more on your heels, the company's heels, um, um, and the time frame's a little bit shorter. But it still takes, you know, I'm thinking of a case I'm working on now, which has these very issues, and we've been looking into it for over a year. 
Um, and um, it's only now gestating to the point where there's discussions with the Department of Justice and other regulators. Um, in terms of the, the sources of uh, the cases, uh, it's also broader than it used to be. Just while the Department of Justice and the SEC, you know, would never want to admit this, alums from those um, two groups that prosecute corruption, including ones we've added at Gibson Dunn, you know, will tell you, frankly, that, you know, historically, most of the cases, 80, 90 percent of the cases they generated were coming from self-reports by companies. They had generated, to their credit, um, um, a palpable sense that it was in the interest of many companies with serious problems to try to come in and talk to the regulators, when, in fact, there probably was a lower likelihood that the regulators were going to discover the problem, but for the reporting. Um, and that's to their credit, because they brought enough cases to create sort of a paradigm or a prisoner's dilemma, or however one wants to phrase it. Um, now I think it's getting to the point where, where they actually are backing it up a little more by independently investigating and discovering things. And they're doing this WikiLeaks, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, other sources of information um, are helping them define things. Um, regulators in other countries are on the phone. I mean, the Brazilian regulators and the UK regulators speak on a weekly basis with the, with the Department of Justice and, to some extent, the SEC. Um, and I think a really big source is um, the integration of anti-money laundering. Um, um, prosecutors, you see this not so much at the SEC, but at the DOJ level in the U.S. They're following, those are the folks that follow the money. And, David, you know this better than anyone around that no matter what the area of corruption or fraud to be investigated, if you follow the trail of the money, that often leads you, to, you don't know where it leads you, but it often leads a prosecutor or investigator to some bad place, some troublesome place. And um, you're, we're seeing increasingly uh, an intersection between money laundering expertise, both at the investigative stage with the FBI and other investigators and the, you know, the, the money laundering group at the Department of Justice or in U.S. Attorney's offices. They are often sitting in on the first meetings, or they're the ones that you can you find a, you sort of discern when you're talking to the prosecutors are really the, the motivating force, not just the FCPA prosecutors, because they're tracing money backwards from something they see in Panama Papers or the kleptocracy initiative um, at the Department of Justice leading to concerns about corruption in a way that five years ago, honestly, virtually all the cases they worked on, the vast majority, were ones where law firms had been directed by their clients to come in and talk. And that's where they, you know, they would kind of sit back and, uh, and sort of nod knowingly as if, they, you know, as if they had some idea what you were reporting to them. But in reality, you got the sense that they'd never heard anything about it until you came in. I think that's different now. I think, I think they really do know much more about what's going on before you come in. So, Joel, I've heard you um, in counseling clients, and I'm thinking about one particular matter in which we uh, both were working with a client, uh, part of this is an educational process. So the world of commerce is not the only thing that is becoming increasingly interconnected. It's the regulatory world as well and the sharing of information. And maybe you can also um, comment for our audience about how, how voracious the appetite is on the enforcement side to consume information from, as you were already alluding to, a wide variety of sources, but not the least of which are public records, blog sites, uh, media, social media, et cetera, and the mining effort that they are undertaking in order to either develop potential leads on investigations that have yet to begin, but also to monitor situations that they're already interested in. Well, they so uh, uh, one example like again, I, I just I think we all work from our own experience. Um, 
I uh, was representing a large global bank years ago that saw, this was probably eight or nine years ago, saw a problem in a region in Asia um, where they were deeply concerned that some of their local representatives might have stepped over the line in terms of offering enticements in connection with some uh, real estate projects. And there was local reporting in the, um, the local newspapers and local media sources in that Asian country. Um, and there was a decision. One of the questions I was asked was, does the Department of Justice see this stuff? And so, you know, we would talk to, uh, you know, one of the advantages of having having close relations with some of the prosecutors is not that you can call them up and ask them, hey, do you, you know, do you see this stuff? But you get to know them. You get to know a little bit about the sources. And then when they come out and they join your law firm, some of them as, as defense counsel, you get to learn a little more, you know, how they've been operating recently. They don't share confidences, but they do share a little more about, you know, the types of methodologies they use. And they were, in the case I was just referring to, a decision was made, a reasonable, rational decision by a major bank not to disclose something when they weren't really sure if it was violative of the law or not. But they, um, you know, they, they took the reasonable decision that they would clean it up, they would remediate the problem, but they wouldn't report it because they felt there was a lower likelihood that um, U.S. regulators would, even, would ever independently become aware of it. I think that's changed entirely now. There's a perception, probably a reality, that they, you know, they've got teams that are that are, that are mining data, that are mining information. I think what the, what the Department of Justice and the SEC have done a better job with also is they have their own, they have their own longitudinal sort of uh, memory. Um, they actually know a lot about, they are sharing information amongst their teams and along and with the FBI about what they learned in a case that might not be helpful to that matter, but, but it's great intelligence for the next matter. So for instance, if it's Kazakhstan, you know, they just know a lot about touch points of potential corruption or problems in Kazakhstan that might not relate to company A or company B, but it might relate to company C six months later, and they draw on that experience. Um, and when you meet with them, while I wouldn't say this is uniformly true, um, it's more true than in the past that they actually understand the products and the markets that they're, that they're considering to investigate. So again, in the financial services world, you used to go in and you try to explain what are, you know, fairly fundamental concepts of loan structures and, and et cetera. And, and honestly, these young prosecutors didn't really know what you're talking about, or private equity or oil and gas or pharmaceutical or whatever. They um, now have a much better sense of that. And then finally, they have a much better sense of how compliance programs work in big companies and in medium-sized companies, where the failures are. They know where, what, 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 what points to press on to determine whether there was a control failure. And you, that's why you're seeing so many more control failure cases brought. It's not just um, that they were excited about bringing those. It's because they actually have a greater awareness of, you know, of where failures within organizational structures can lead to violations of law. So that's a, a great segue to, I'll call my next two questions. Um, one of the toughest decisions that companies are faced with, um, even when they have great advice uh, from people such as yourself, is what to disclose, when to disclose, and sort of what to do when they become aware of a potential violation. And obviously, there have been new initiatives by both the SEC and DOJ to provide some clarification around that. Um, but maybe you can, and you alluded to prisoner's dilemma, maybe you can help to enlighten the audience about 
I'll call it the decision tree and how you begin to counsel clients uh, when they do become aware of a potential violation in terms of what to do, what steps to take, and how to think about the uh, issue of disclosure. It's funny you mentioned as a decision tree, David, because we actually have this, um, this map that we use internally, or at least we, we don't use it assiduously, but we, we have it that we show it to clients sometimes to get them to understand the different inputs and the different pathways that, that will ensue if they decide to disclose or decide not to disclose because it because it's really complicated um, and it keeps changing a bit. So I think in general, um, and, and I think that I, I don't want to speak for every Gibson Dunn practitioner in this area, but we've got a large group and we, we speak frequently and I think we have a general approach. I think our approach is um, a little less reflexively towards uh, sort of we don't we don't presume that self-disclosure is in the interests of our clients. That's not to say we that we uh, don't think that that remediating problems is a good idea. We always encourage our clients to do that, and the partners we work with do that. But um, our experience has been, and we've actually done some statistical analysis of this, that the benefit, the net benefit that comes from self-disclosure in the area of corruption is not as tangible as prosecutors would like to represent. Uh, that's not to say it's not meaningful and it's not to say you shouldn't disclose, but um, it's not the huge variance that one that the, that the prosecutors want the, the companies to think. And so that means that the analysis has to be sort of an intersection of what's the likelihood that, that, that the problem that you're seeing might be discovered, what, um, which, is, which I would say in general has increased over the last five or 10 years significantly, what's the likelihood that the penalties will be higher, uh, um, which has also increased significantly. You know, when I started doing this work after I left the government, the largest settlement, the first settlement I ever worked on for a company, um, which I think, David, you also touched, was a $26 million FCPA penalty all in, and now that's considered a small penalty. I mean, we've got multiple penalties. The top 10 are all, you know, between $300 million and, and, and over a billion dollars. Um, so it's changed work. So the penalties are much higher, but um, so there's a higher likelihood it's going to be detected. The penalties are going to be higher, but the variance between, and, th and this isn't just anecdotal. This is our sort of statistical analysis of because we follow all these cases. We really try carefully to to have a sense of a, you know try to a sense of where we think the case might settle um, with the government if you have to, and there just isn't as much of a variance. So that's what leads us many times to you know to be wary about just saying to a client, go into the government and self-disclose and everything will be all right, or it won't be all right, but it'll be significantly better. We're not, you know, we, we, we self-disclose as well um, at client's direction, but um, we don't see the benefit being uh, as tangible uh, as, as perhaps others do. So a uh, very, very important point to make because I know um, many of the general counsels of our clients and our chief compliance officers as well as board members uh, will read about the importance of disclosure, uh, the 10 conferences, uh, the notion that uh, there is a opportunity to minimize or basically eliminate the penalties as a result of this. And uh, Joel, your you know, experience in this area, I mean, the two takeaways are, number one, uh, the probabilities of the government learning about this are higher in the current environment from a variety of sources, whether public records or whistleblowers who are now incentivized, but that this continues to be a very significant conundrum 
uh, for companies to, you know, to sort of reach a reasonable conclusion. And I would highlight that, um, at least in my experience, it does require careful, careful consideration with very experienced outside counsel such as yourself, because it is not um, by any means a, uh, a straightforward decision. Uh, what I'll also note is that there, as I know, Joel, you've counseled clients. There are, uh, for public companies, there are uh, securities disclosure requirements around these types of issues as well, not just simply on the FCPA side. So um, as you look forward and because of the pronouncements that have recently been made, are you anticipating any kind of, I'll call it paradigm shift that will make that decision tree easier for companies? Well, uh, I think that uh, probably the answer is yes, but it's going to take some time. Um, there is, uh, for those of uh, listening who aren't aware, there is a, D- a Department of Justice pilot program that began in April 2016. I mean, now it's been uh, it's being enacted as a permanent program, which is intended to um, promote transparency to help correct the perception that FCPA enforcement is unreasoned and is inconsistent. Um, that is a not only a perception. I think, but my view is that. Um, it, it is not perfectly consistent, and, and not not because the prosecutors are, are willingly making decisions, but you know there's so many variables, including just changing winds of, of enforcement, and each fact pattern is different. But they're trying to create a sense, or at least create the the, the perception that um, that there'll be more consistency. But it also this new permanent program um, is supposed to offer a pathway. It's been changed recently to um, offer up explicitly a presumption that the Department of Justice will decline to prosecute a case if the company satisfies certain enumerated standards of voluntary remediation and disclosure. Um, they've never before said that, and now they are. Now, as is typical with the DOJ, they caveat that by saying, you know, this can't be used against us in a court of law. This is just a policy. But they are putting them out there. Yeah, right. So I, I hear you, you, you're laughing because, you know, that that's, you know, they're always, you know, that they get to define the universe um, for enforcement. But so I think over time, it's going to make a difference. The problem is so you, the practical problem. You meet with a client, client comes in, talks to you, David talks to me and says, you know, gee, we see this new program. This looks great. Presumption of, um, of, uh, you know, that, that they will decline to prosecute the case outright. That's great. That's wonderful. Tell me about all the instances where that's happened. And then, so, you know, we pull out our database of matters, which is in the number of that of voluntary disclosures, which have increased. I mean, there were 22 uh, in the first year of the program and 13 the year before uh, that. So it's increased, which is what the DOJ wanted. But what you can't really tell is how is the outcome holistically for all of them, unless you know the facts of all of them. Because what it doesn't tell you is whether individuals in those companies are being prosecuted. It doesn't tell you necessarily whether they're, they're having to pay penalties to other regulators who are increasingly piling on. Um, I think I don't mean to I don't mean to be I don't mean to question the bona fides of the program. I think the Department of Justice, and I think under this administration, there is definitely a desire to create a more tangible benefit. But it's going to take some time. And when you're talking to sophisticated businessmen and women who want to see metrics, and you know, they don't want to see they don't want to hear. Trust me, I think this is going to work out. They want to know is there a track record in which you can show me that this is going to make a difference if we disclose, and are we positioned to succeed and get that, um, obtain the voluntary uh, 
the, the, the declination as opposed to just a lesser penalty. It's harder to predict still. So I, I for one, um, am not at the point where I would um, just willy-nilly recommend to a client to participate in the pilot program unless all of the stars align, because I don't think there's enough of a, of a, of a longitudinal uh, basis to, to conclude that it's actually working, even though I don't question that they're acting in good faith in, in the DOJ in offering this. It's a great overview. Um, so thanks, Joel. And uh, irrespective of which way you move on the disclosure side, I know you have uh, given some very helpful and, and prescient advice about what a company needs to do on their own when they either discover an actual violation or one that they think uh, could potentially um, be involved. And maybe you can sort of uh, set forth some of the guidance you do give companies when you know a suspicious situation arises. So, yeah, so um, the first thing, there are many things to think about. Obviously, the first thing you want to do is to ring fence the, the nature of the risk review that's going to be undertaken to make sure that it's um, protected by attorney-client privilege and confidentiality to the extent possible. But equally, to make sure that the clients understand that if, they, if we do have to talk to a regulator, um, confidentiality and privilege don't prevent us don't give us a shield against having to disclose the underlying facts, and, the, and prosecutors are increasingly drawing that distinction. You know, you can't just say, well, we discussed this with a lawyer, and therefore we can't tell you anything about it. The prosecutors are going to say, well, we want to know the facts. You don't have to tell us about the discussion with the lawyer, but tell us what happened. But that's, so that's the first thing, is to put in place something that protects the investigation to the extent possible. But it's also... Um, Looking at, the, at, you know, looking at uh, the way I describe it is, is um, and um, others have similar phrases that are probably more elegant, but the one I think of is concentric circles. You try to ring fence, what is, the, what is the nature of the problem? When did it happen? Where did it happen? Is it still happening? And then go one concentric circle around it, because the question that a regulator is going to ask is not just what happened, but how do you know it isn't happening elsewhere in the company? And you're going to want to be able to give a cogent response to say, here's how we were able to, to, to scope to re get the reasonable assurance that it hasn't replicated itself elsewhere or isn't susceptible to happening again. And so you first have to understand the nature of the problem, and then you want to build around that, that record with a concentric circle around the problem to, to create, really to remediate it, not just to look good for a regulator, but to actually remediate it. And I think the other... Um, Thing to think about is there tend to be increasingly two phases to these concerns. One is what happened, and then the second increasingly, which I think I alluded to earlier when I was talking about the focus on compliance programs, um, regulators will, will increasingly want to know what was the reaction of the organization and its, and its you know, self-preventive structures, whether it's legal or compliance, um, to, to ferret it out and stop it. How quickly did they react to it? Um, and um, while um, you know that's not the determinative factor, increasingly we see companies um, that um, have, that can demonstrate um, a remediation. I mean, there's, a, there's a day in, in, in the life of any investigation, um, virtually everyone that I work on now, where you end up having to talk to a regulator, uh, where you have to have a presentation where they say, you know, they want to know what did you do to remediate, what's your program look like, what are the lessons learned. You know, what, and they want to actually hear, you know, what steps were taken. Um, and what that means is that as it echoes, you know, inwardly or, or reverts inwardly to the company, increasingly there has to be presentations 
to demonstrate how that analysis was done uh, with compliance and legal personnel and, and often to the board. I mean, it's very important that the board can demonstrate of a company, public or private, that they, that they had a thoughtful and speedy response to this and that a, a message from the top of the company was to remediate it and that they were actually not just, oh, yeah, our lawyers told us they took care of it, but we, the board, if it's of any meaningful amount relative to the size and dimension of the company, that we, the board, actually considered it just like we would spend some time at a board meeting considering any other meaningful risk. And I think the best way to measure that is when you've got penalties, fines and penalties in the hundreds of millions of dollars for companies for corruption, you know, it's easier for a board to understand why it's important to spend, you know, 40 minutes in a, you know, in a board meeting or two to hear the outcome of the, of the investigation. So increasingly, that all these things kind of fit together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to help the company understand the problem, ring fence it, um, uh, put the concentric circle, scope it so that the scoping isn't being decided by some prosecutor, but rather by you. Um, and, um, and to create, you know, and to really make sure that you create a good record of how you dealt with it. It's not just what happened in the past, it's what's happening right now that they care about a lot. So in underscoring um, a very, very important theme, which are the documentable standards of care and um, how you respond, the timeliness, measures in place, who's brought in. I know you spend a lot of time as well, Joel, in uh, talking about the prevention side. So recognizing you know, a good portion of your practice is uh, to respond to the, we'll call it the hair on fire moments. I know you do also spend a lot of time counseling companies about the benefits of a uh, uh, sort of uh, an ounce of uh, prevention being worth a pound of cure. And one of, uh, and I can speak firsthand in terms of Joel's value uh, for folks who are involved in um, principal investing uh, or in the business of uh, bringing companies into the markets. It is uh, often helpful beyond having the corporate folks as part of the underwriting teams and the investment teams, but to have people with Joel's experience because very often in terms of um, assessing a transaction, an opportunity, a company that's going into the markets, the ability to look at that company, look at where they're doing business, understand their internal controls, their compliance infrastructure, understand generally the industry risks can be extremely important in, um, I'll call it pricing the risk and putting in the types of measures that can often uh, be extraordinarily valuable in ensuring the ROI and safeguarding the commercial model, the reputation, and uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, the ongoing legal risk to an organization. So. Maybe you can share with us, Joel, some of some of the insights and lessons you have from being able to get under the tent early uh, with a company uh, in advance of a problem or um, getting under the tent with private equity and you know other investors who are looking at opportunities. It, it, I think the, um, from our perspective, it, it, it gives and done one of the best ways, maybe the single best way we've been able to help clients assess in advance the risks and try to mitigate the risks in advance. It's the work that we've been able, we've been fortunate to do uh, as, uh, when we've been appointed as monitors in corruption and related cases. We've done four or five of these for very significant companies, including Siemens and, um, and um, 
several others. And what that allows you to do is what you have to do in that process, if it's being done, I think, appropriately, is you have to report to the regulators on a quarterly or semi-annual or annual basis, as well as the company, um, the progress they're making to improve their, their process and, their, and legal and compliance and accounting reviews and all kinds of technical things in order to training to, to make sure that, that the problem that got them into trouble doesn't happen again. So we've done, you know, very lengthy reports that are delivered, you know, confidentially to the DOJ, the SEC, other regulators, banking regulators, and, um, and uh, the company itself. And I think that's really, as you say, David, quite correctly, it's looking under the hood to see how things went and then reporting on it. And what we've tried to you to do is to replicate the kinds of things that we look at when we help companies think about how do we prevent this. Um, we, you know, I think the best advice is to not just to, it, there's no one size fits all. Um, there are different levels of risk for companies depending on the industry they're in. Um, we try to take a more nuanced approach. So for instance, I'll give you a tangible example. There's the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index, which is basically like a U.S. News and World Report version of corruption perceptions by measuring market participants' perceptions of which countries are riskier or less risky for corruption. So you will not surprisingly every year see that Nigeria is considered to be a higher risk of corruption than Sweden, and I think that's a fair assessment. But that doesn't mean that all business in Nigeria is riskier than all business in, well, it might, it might mean that it's all riskier generally, but it doesn't mean that all businesses. There are businesses in Nigeria that are less risky. There are businesses in other high-risk places that you can manage. Colombia, as an example, still has a reputation of being a very risky place. Yet there are many ways in which business in, Col in Colombia can absolutely be managed from a co compliance and corruption risk perspective. So we try to take a more nuanced industry basis. Um, the other thing that I've, I've been I've learned a lot from, you know, talking to people like you and talking to um, clients in in really large, sophisticated companies about how they assess risk. And what's really struck me. Um, is that the companies that are the most successful at building um, sort of modalities that prevent, that mitigate risk, they look at compliance risk and, rep and rep reputational risk and legal risk as part of a one total form of risk. They are very good at assessing economic risk and pricing risk and other kinds of risks when they engage in investments or open businesses in places or do certain types of things or supply chain. They're very good at evaluating how they, how they run the financial parts of their business. And they apply, the, they, they consider legal risk and compliance risk and reputational risk of engaging with business in certain places and with certain people as equal sort of uh, cohorts in that overall process. And those are the companies that I think are really doing the best at this now. They don't, they don't sideline the, the corruption thing as, oh, here comes Gibson Dunn, and they're gonna give us a bunch of modules about how to train and how to do this and how to do that which we have to do to look good for the regulators, it's, it's, it's the opposite. It's we operate in risky environments all the time. We keep, we keep people here at our company that evaluate risk, and this is part of it. And just as somebody evaluates the credit risk of a loan or of an investment, um, those same people can be taught to evaluate the risk of doing business in Nigeria from a corruption perspective, and it's no it's of no lesser important, and it's of you know, similar quality as the other forms of risk. And so they build risk, you know, risk analyses that take that into consideration. When that happens, then all of the other things tend to fall into place because you tend to not have the resistance in the business um, to you know, folks giving advice about compliance 
you know, historically there's been this, in some companies, a, a sense of, um, which makes it difficult for internal in-house uh, compliance people, which I know you, you know, you combated very successfully in your time in the banking industry. Um, you know, you, you've got the, the, the paradigm is the business people are saying, you know, why do we need to do this? Or why do we need to do that? And you guys are slowing this down and closing this deal. It's the companies where the discussions about risk from, from corruption, for instance, become part of the discussion as well as, you know, what's the credit risk here? And nobody is looking at the lawyers or the compliance officers as if they're a drag on business, but rather they're a part of the business. Those are the companies that I think um, best take on board the other sort of aspects of, of, a, of a successful program to mitigate risk. Um, and so, you know, it's just I've learned so much by seeing how good business people, business women and businessmen operate their businesses. And, um, and, and the ones that, that tend to do that best are the ones that tend to get this, this done best as well. All right. So there's some great points. And just to underscore uh, the points you're making, Joel, nothing disrupts uh, an economic model and the anticipated profitability or ROI of a business than all of a sudden learning that a particular revenue stream is built upon corrupt payments and it has to be shut down. And so thinking about this as a credit risk, as you're suggesting, is a great way of um, beginning to think about these issues and also the integration of your human capital management, all of whom can provide something that can be extremely helpful and supportive of the business areas. Uh, let me switch to one of the great, uh, I think, you know, sort of conundrums for companies that are competing on a global basis, which is uh, virtually every country has anti-corruption laws uh, on the books and very often trumpets them. Um, however, you know, the rubber doesn't always meet the road and industry and uh, we'll call it general commercial practices often are 180 degrees different from what's on the books. And yet U.S. companies have to come in, they have to compete in the marketplace, often against uh, other global leaders who may not adhere to what I'll refer to as uh, some of the Western standards of doing business. And consequently, when they go in, uh, they are often confronted uh, with a demand or request as part of doing business or competing in a particular process. And I've always found um, the line between bribery and extortion to be very, very thin and also intellectually challenging. And uh, the difference between being a perpetrator and a victim. And as companies go into markets and they all of a sudden or, or over time, they learned that uh, certain practices are, in fact, if not required, very, very standard. How do you think about uh, giving them the advice in terms of how they can compete effectively in those markets, yet avoiding some of these practices? How is it if you're going to be, if, if you're being extorted, what should you do? How do you keep to the right side of, of, of these particular lines that often, you know, are uh, bored. Well, extortion, you know, I mean, that, that's a big problem. Um, and, um, and of course, there's also, I mean, I'm just thinking of the, because it's, it relates to something I've been working on recently, so my mind is in this place, is the issue of um, what I'll call internal extortion or external extortion. So there are whistle, there are now, 
not only in the United States, but in other countries as well, very robust and ever more developed senses of, you know, lines about, especially if you're a public company, about what, how you need to treat a whistleblower. So if it's an internal source raising a concern, you have to be very careful. Yeah, you know, I want to take any, any, any allegation seriously, but you have to be very careful not to do certain things that might cross the line and become a violation of, of, the, of the appropriate regulations, depending on the industry. And the SEC is very vigorous about this. And, um, you know, and, but you're seeing this in other countries as well. You're seeing it in Brazil, you're seeing it in France, you're seeing it in Germany, you're seeing it um, not so much in Asia. Uh, or, um, and so uh, it's very important um, when the, you know, the, there's extortions in which, I mean, there are, you know, there's, a, there's always been a concern under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I think it's, it's played out less historically than some had imagined, but it's beginning to happen more. Companies are using it as a, as, or, or individuals as an attack point against each other. Um, you know, they'll say, they'll question how company B got a contract with a country for some national service as opposed to company A. Company A will allege that it was done through corruption, um, maybe correctly, maybe not. And so these are all big issues. Uh, obviously, it intersects with uh, electronic security and cybersecurity because, you know, it's, you know, there's information, like in any realm of business, um, hacking or misrepresenting information, you know, to, to create a misimpression um, can be a weapon. And so um, these concerns are not confined just to other areas of reputation, but to corruption as well. Um, and I think we're going to start to see more of that because it, there's an ease by which companies, individuals, groups can hack in or, in, or um, interfere and to create negative impressions about companies um, in the corruption area um, that prevent them from getting business. Um, and we're already seeing a little bit of that in, in South America, for instance, with all of the systemic corruption issues I mean, Brazil. And um, there are, you know, media, I, I don't like to use the phrase false media, fake media, but there are, you know, inaccurate media reports about clients that we represent that falsely tie them to corruption scandals in Brazil um, that, you know, we come to learn are being perpetrated by others who are competing with them with no factual basis. Um, so, you know, the, the kinds of concerns we're all having about extortion and about false reporting generally are, are definitely infiltrating into the corruption world as well. So, Joel, uh, we'll wrap things up, but I want to underscore some things that uh, uh, you just referenced. So. Uh, for the audience, which, look, uh, issues of cybersecurity are now intersecting with FCPA enforcement because as uh, emails get hacked and communications get released, yet another feeder into the uh, potential regulatory uh, exposure. And uh, people continue to have to be very, very careful with uh, their own internal information. And you're absolutely right that... Uh, in a competitive marketplace, uh, competitors will like to, you know, raise allegations, um, often without obviously source attribution, about how certain business was obtained. And that goes back to your point, Joel, about documentable standards of care. And that's not just in the hair on fire moments, but how you entered a transaction, the work you did, the diligence you did, and the types of things that you implemented uh, or helped implement around a company. So. Uh, I'm hoping this will be a conversation to be continued, Joel. I know how valuable your time is. Um, and I'll editorial comment, Joel's 
thought leadership has not just been directly with his clients, but broadly uh, very much um, in the public interest in terms of how he spends his time and speeches he gives and conferences and, and some of the great content and materials that uh, he and Gibson Dunn put out. So we will link some of those materials uh, to this podcast um, and share these things. More to come. And Joel, uh, we're going to stay closely in touch because I know uh, there's more to come and uh, there are even more insights that we were not able to unpack uh, due to time limitations. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure.